Good morning. I'm Art, if I haven't met you. Um, Matt asked me if I would talk briefly about prayer and the prayer team. So I was thinking, how do you address a, a room full of saints who probably know more about prayer than you do? But I'd like to talk ab about some misconceptions that I had about prayer and how it helped me after God corrected that. And then talk about the prayer team a little bit. And then I do have a couple of encouragements. If you're on the prayer team, please raise your hand, the prayer team at AC Squared. So if you look around, we'll talk about what it is and why. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was flying back from, um, from Louisville to Anchorage last night, had a nice view, and I was thinking about Hebrews 11.6, thinking about a lot of things about prayer. And um, I hope you heard in Deb's testimony what role prayer played. Um, what if her mom hadn't prayed for her? What if she hadn't prayed to God and poured out her heart to him? I mean, we don't know, but what a, what a role prayer had in, in what we got to, to hear today and, and uh, what a difference it's made in Deb's life and in all of our lives. So Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So last night, if you would put up the second slide there, please, Callan. That was, and if you didn't see last Sunday night, this is what I got to see out the window as we're flying over Canada last night. And it just, it, you know, a lot of you probably saw the Northern Lights. Natalia saw it for the first time last week and we got a bunch of great pictures and a lot of people did and that to me is a picture of he is so we're at 40,000 feet and I don't know if we have any flat earthers but you can see a little bit of the curvature of the earther <laughs> yeah it's the camera it's it's the distortion um, so that part he is I don't so much think that I had trouble with that but if you'd go to the other slide, anybody know where that is? Somewhere we flew by. I think I heard it. A little louder? Oh, it's, uh, it's Chicago. Um, so we were, we were flying by and just took a picture of it. But I looked at the population. I think Chicago has about so there maybe 9 million. But in that picture, there could be, say, 7 million people. And on the planet, there's maybe 7 billion. So that's one one-thousandth of the planet's population right there. And I used to think, okay, let's picture God wherever he is. Okay, he's everywhere, but that's a lot of people there. Say there's 7 million in that photo. He knows all of our thoughts. And there's a thousand times that many people on the planet. They all have thoughts. And I remember in the military, we had a course on executive writing. Your boss is busy, so don't write this long description and background and then tell them what you want. Tell them bottom line up front. Anybody heard that bluff? Just put your main point out there because he's busy. He's going to glance at it, and you don't want to waste all his time. And it made me think of Bruce Almighty, very irreverent, can't recommend the movie, but... What if God was like us and he's bound in our time domain and he's trying to keep up? And it kind of, I, I didn't really realize I was thinking this, but 
if God has seven billion people to keep track of, plus everything else, I don't really want to bother with him with what I would call a minor request. I better save it for something that's really important. I don't want to bother Matt all the time. I know he's got an important job. Um, but I have asked him if he'd come over and shovel off my deck before so I could go to cigar night, which he did. <laughs> so thank you for that, Matt. Um, and then through some studies, and I've talked about this here before, God spoke our universe into existence. And when he created matter, he also created time. He created it, but he's not bound up in it. He's not going through this timeline or through this tunnel of time. He exists outside of time. So those seven million people are all seven billion of us. He's not, he is busy, but he's not rushed. So that encouraged me, okay, he's got time to hear every request. And if we get to know his heart a little bit, he wants to hear those requests. So it helped me slow down, through, sort through, okay, does this meet the level of I should talk to the Almighty about this? Um, you think about when Jesus was crucified and the veil and the temple was torn, not from the bottom up, but from the top down, and we have access to the Holy of Holies, and we can go boldly before the throne of grace. What a privilege that we have for prayer. Um, we have a prayer team because prayer is important. I'm not going to try to cover all the topics, but once I started realizing how powerful God is and that he works through prayer, and when you read through the armor of God, we kind of skip that part a lot of times in Ephesians that talks about praying all, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. There's a lot of alls in there. But that, to me, um, one, of, one teacher I've studied calls it the heavy artillery. So you've got your defensive armor, and this is the offensive heavy artillery. So is the sword, but this is the big heavy artillery. And it's in the unseen realm because our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. And so we don't see, and so a lot of times we don't realize how real it is. Um, if you go back to the other slide, please, Callan. When, when I looked out the window, I didn't even know there was green there. We were just talking. It looked like a little bit of wispy clouds. It was dark except for the moon. And we thought, maybe that's northern lights. So I put the iPhone up, and as it does its time exposure, the colors popped out but it just looked gray. You know, we see like in a mirror dimly, we have some sort of realization about what's going on in the spirit world, but oftentimes it's very dim, but it's not to God. And in many ways, that's more real than, than what we see. <clears throat> so for me, I've been encouraged that I don't have to worry, does God have time or is this important enough to ask him? I can ask him anything. And a lot of times now, Natalia and I have prayed about things like seeing animals, something specific, and then he answers in specific ways. And I've also thought about if, if I ask Matt to come shovel for me, and he does, and I 
don't bother to thank him or dismiss it. And I just keep asking him, hey, can you come do this? Can you come do this? And I don't even stop to thank him. That would be pretty rude. Um, and we're, we're exhorted in Scripture, come with thanksgiving and make our requests known boldly. So I do want to keep track. And that's one thing we try to do in the prayer team is we're all happy to pray. It's a privilege and we've tried to organize it so that we can keep track. Okay, this one is still ongoing. We still want to keep praying for Annette. Um, we're still believing she's going to be healed, as an example. But we haven't seen that answer yet. But we've seen a lot of other answers and a lot of specific answers. And so if you make a request that's specific enough that you know whether it's been, ans been answered. I mean, if I just pray, okay, Lord, please bless that person. How do, how do I know if, if that's answered? But I ask for something specific, and then they can tell me, yeah, that prayer was specifically answered. That encourages, strengthens all of our faith when we hear he answered that specifically. Um, so please do send specific requests to the prayer team. And Matt, can you explain the easiest way or ways to do that? Yeah, so we've got, oh, that's loud. We've got a 24-7 uh, text line that the church has access to. We have stickers back here with the phone number on it. You can hand those stickers out to anybody who's seeking to have uh, a, a people of God pray for them. And then you can put it on your water bottle. You can put it on your laptop. You can put it anywhere where you, on your refrigerator, well, you'll constantly see it so that when somebody shares a prayer request with you, you can share it with us. Or when you have a prayer request, you can share it with us. And then we ask that you keep us posted, like Art was saying, on how those things transpire so that we can give glory to God for his work in our lives. Thanks. Do I have a couple more minutes? Yeah. I wanted to read a couple of verses mm -hmm. that I found helpful. There's so many Bibles full of prayer. Um, this is in James, though. I love James. He gets right to the point and doesn't pull any punches. James 4, 2 to 3. Um, you do not get what you want because you do not ask God. Or when you ask, you do not receive because the reason you ask is wrong. You want things so you can use them for your own pleasures. Wow, I've done that many times. In James 5, 13 to 16, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him or her in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we could ask ourselves, are we righteous? And we look at ourselves and we'd say no, but if we're in Christ, we're clothed in absolute perfect righteousness and we have access before the throne room. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 6, 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, 
and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So reach out to the prayer team. Don't try to always pray alone in your prayer closet, although there's certainly a place for that. I would encourage you to read Daniel 9. Look at how Daniel started. He saw what, he knew what God was going to do because he'd been reading scripture. He clothed himself in sackcloth, he fasted, and he prayed, and he started confessing his own sins and the sins of his people. It's amazing. Look, read, read Daniel 9, and I think you'll find that encouraging. Um, and the last point is, I firmly believe that we should ask for and expect miracles. Uh, several of us have read a book about, about miracles, and it's, it's convicting and encouraging at the same time. But I also want to encourage us to be good stewards of what we might say are smaller answers to prayer. I don't think there's any answer to prayer where we reach out to the Almighty God and He answers that's not a miracle. So I don't want to belabor the point or give any spoilers away, so why don't we just bow our heads in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig right into this morning's study. Father, thank you for what it is that you're doing. The testimony of Deb and your righteous right arm, not leaving her alone and dejected, but delivering her and saving her from the world and from the devil and from the flesh. Father, thank you that you have granted us access, as Art said. The veil has been torn. The dividing wall has been laid asunder. We can come to you with boldness. Not only can we come to you with boldness, but you have given us your spirit so that we might intercede for others as well. So this morning, God, we recognize that there is no other mediator but the man Jesus Christ. But there is a body of intercessors who under the headship and authority of Christ have been given the spirit to seek you with all of our praise and prayer requests, Lord. So God, this morning we give you honor for what it is that you're gonna do. Help me, Lord, to speak with clarity to your people in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning's passage comes to us from the book of Jonah. If you're with us for the first time, hello, we're glad that you're here. We recognize that you could have been anywhere else in the world, and you chose to be right here with us today. And so for that, we're grateful. Stick around, get a cup of coffee at the end, grab a donut, and talk to somebody, somebody you don't know. We would like to welcome you into the family. In this sermon series on the book of Jonah... We are going to be focusing on scene three, and we'll get into that, but let's read from the text this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV. It's going to be on the screen. If you got your Bibles in your hands, I would encourage you to turn there. Jonah chapter one, we're starting in verse 17. It's the last verse in chapter one, and we're reading all 10 verses in chapter two. Our author begins in verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and everybody said, what? What? 
A little slow, but we'll work on it. <laughs> and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Everybody said, no way. No way. There we go. <laughs> and this is what he said. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Everyone said amen. amen. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now we said it in week one, this story is sensational. I mean straight up, over the top. It's crazy. You read this story and you're like, am I really supposed to believe that this happened to somebody? <laughs> That's a great question to ask. It's a great question to wrestle through. Now this morning, our goal, and we need a goal, right? So this morning our goal is to navigate our way through the first half. I'm sorry, it's to navigate our way through uh, the closing scene in the first half of the book of Jonah. So let's ex let me explain myself. I introduced this slide last week into our study. All right? This is an outline that chronicles the alternating scenes in and through the book of Jonah. Last week we talked about this. Scenes 1, 3, 4, and 6 all place an emphasis. They place a focus on God's interaction with God's prophet. Scene 2 and scene 5 place an emphasis or they put a focus on Jonah's interactions with the pagan Gentiles. Now why are we putting this up again? Because I need everybody to get a visual understanding, not just an audible understanding, but a visual understanding that scene 3 puts an emphasis, it places the focus on who? And his interactions with who? Okay, so what does looking at this slide teach us about scene three? It teaches us that it's not about the fish, everybody. <laughs> okay? Jonah is not about the fish. <laughs> the fish is a distraction in our modern world. It was not a distraction for the original author. It was not a distraction for his audience. My God, has it become a distraction in our world. We're not going to fall into that trap today, okay? We're going to exegete the word of God. We're not going to eisegete it, okay? Now, I promise if there's time at the end, I can answer all the wackadoodle questions on the fish, okay? But we're going to talk about what the Bible talks about, 
Not what people in the 21st century are interested in, okay? All right, so that being said, I need you guys to read this next slide. Old Testament scholar Jeff Anderson, who I was blessed to sit under in my college experience, reminds us that the most important truth claim in chapter 1, verse 17 is not connected to the type or the species of the fish. Okay? The truth claim of verse 17 has nothing to do with the type or species of the fish. Rather, verse 17 functions to spotlight the reality of God's uncontested authority over all creation. That's what this verse is teaching us, that God is sovereign, okay? So if you're going to take anything away from verse 17, take that away. (laughs) Now, J. Daniel Hayes notes that the Hebrew language makes zero distinction between fish and mammals, okay? So the Hebrew language which this letter was written in, makes zero distinction between fish and mammals. Now, Billy K. Smith observes that the noun in Hebrew is generic. It's ambiguous. The masculine form dag and the female form daga are ambiguous. Okay? And then you've got the Greek translation, which you'll find in the LXX. By the way, Jesus also speaks about Jonah, and he uses the term kratos. Uh, I say Kratos, you can say Ketos, you know. What's that? You're asking where the R is? So the Greek phonetic spelling and pronunciation is going to be different than the English phonetic spelling and pronunciation. So etymologically, some scholars will argue that our term whale comes from the Greek, and they're not wrong. But to argue that because the etymology of a future language comes from a previously dated word is anachronism. To read that word back into the Hebrew, which it's not there originally, would be anachronism. That would be us reading our worldview into their worldview, and we cannot do that. So that's an excellent observation and example. Thank you for sharing that. Words change over time, and new words come into existence, right? Like the internet meant nothing to the person in the 1950s. But it definitely means something to everybody today, right? And so we have to learn that language is dynamic. And so, Dasha, thank you for sharing that. But when we're talking about the Hebrew, we need to remember that the term is generic. Now, are we aware? We kind of just touched on this, but in a different capacity. Are we aware that during the life and ministry of Jonah, the scientific disciplines of ichthyology and cetology didn't exist. And right now, Siobhan is going, my goodness, I'm glad I'm not translating for Dalton. <laughs> right? What is ichthyology? Well, let's answer the question so you guys can pick up what it is that I'm putting down. Ichthyology is the technical term for studying fish by their species. Cetology is the 
specific discipline of studying whales and dolphins. These terms that we are familiar with by the phrase modern biology, (laughs) these disciplines didn't exist in the ancient Near East, yo. (laughs) They weren't concerned with the things that we're concerned with. Something here is fishy. (laughs) So what does this teach us? Well, this teaches us, right, that the event in scene three in the book of Jonah is clearly portrayed as a special act of God. What is a special act of God? We have a word for that. We call it a miracle. Miracles are, by definition, impossible. At least, or at minimum, they're improbable. Therefore, the matter becomes an issue of philosophy. It's not an issue of scientific explanation, church. So when someone comes to you and says, How could Jonah be alive in the belly of a whale for three days? It's scientifically unexplainable. You say it's not a matter of scientific explanation. It's a matter of philosophy. As Christians, we embrace a worldview that miracles are possible. Why? Because we're a text-driven people, and the text says that with God, all things are possible. So our worldview Our presupposition embraces the reality that a miracle is a possibility. Why? Because the creator of the universe is involved in it. Okay? Paul says that if Christ be not raised from the dead, then Christians are to be the most pitied people in the world because everything we believe is a farce. It's a good thing the Christian worldview embraces the reality of miracles because Christ did die. And three days later, to prove his power and his authority over death, he raised himself from the dead. And if he can do that, guess what he can do for you? The same guarantee that he had on his own life is the same guarantee we have on ours. Amen? Amen. You could preach the gospel right out of the book of Jonah. Okay? That's for free. All right, so it's not an issue of scientific explanation. It's an issue of philosophy. And when you look at someone who thinks that they've got the ace of spades and they're going to drop it on you and you tell them that, watch them go, I don't even know how to respond to that. It will happen. Trust me. And then you can pray for them. Now, in chapter 1, verse 17, we read that Yahweh is the cause of this miraculous event. I mean, full stop, God is the cause of this miraculous event. The narrator is clear. It was the Lord who had ordained a great fish to swallow Jonah. I love James Bruckner's, like, how he handles this portion of the text. His treatment on it is beautiful. The Hebrew term mana, almost like the Spanish band, but in Hebrew, the Hebrew term mana, to a point To provide or to ordain is used by the narrator throughout the book in connection to, guess what? All of the non-human agents provided by God, and what do they do? Each one of them is commissioned to help Jonah teach the wayward prophet, or each one is commissioned to help teach the wayward prophet Jonah a lesson, right? So we've got the fish, we've got the plant, we've got the worm, and we've got the scorching east wind, all non-human elements agents of God, that he will appoint or ordain to accomplish his work. 
Why? Because he has authority over all things. Remember, that's the point of verse 17. I love it. When we look at verse 17, if it teaches us anything, it's that scene three is just like scene one and two. They display the merciful character of Yahweh who's in hot pursuit of a rebellious prophet. And that's when everybody goes, oh, I love that part of the story. I love that part of the story because that merciful God who's in pursuit of his rebellious prophet is the same merciful God who's in pursuit of my rebellious heart. While I was yet a sinner, Christ willfully faced the cross. While I was at enmity with God, he overcame it on my behalf. Amen? Again, did we say you could preach the gospel out of the book of Jonah? Because we're doing it this morning. God is in hot pursuit of the rebellious heart. Don't let anybody tell you different. Nobody's born a Christian. Nobody. Now, the focus of the narrator shifts in our next scene, so I need you guys to read this next slide for me out loud, please. Do we notice, right, the focus was on Yahweh? The narrator was speaking about what it was that Yahweh did, and now the focus of the narrator is on Jonah, and how Jonah is responding. Reacting is probably a better word, but we can say responding. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Now we need to pause. <laughs> we got to pause here because I have to ask an important question, and I hope you guys are thinking critically with me about this book, because this book requires us to think critically, okay? Is Jonah's prayer a panicked response to the threat of his own death and destruction? I mean, like, I can tell you so many stories where I personally, Deb, you shared this this morning as well, We've been in places where we had no business being, <laughs> doing things that we had no business doing. <laughs> and when we were right there in the thick of it, we were like, ah, how did I get here? And what did we do? Lord, <laughs> I swear to God, <laughs> I'll never find myself in this set of circumstances if you just deliver me, please, 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 I swear. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. If you're saying no, you're lying. <laughs> Even the atheist says things like, oh my God, why would you say that, bro? He's not real. Who are you speaking to right now? Who are you referencing? Who are you referring to? <laughs> like, we got to ask this question. Is Jonah's prayer a panicked response to the threat of his own destruction? I believe it is. Last week I argued that Jonah would rather die than submit to God. And I still hold that position. However, now that he's face to face with death... I think he may have had a little change of heart. And I'll tell you, when you are facing death down, even the hardest individual 
will have a change of heart. So what do we think about what it is that Jonah's doing here? Now, before we get into the psalm of Jonah, and when I say psalm, I mean prayer, and when I say prayer, I mean song. Right? Because a psalm is a prayer is a song. The Psalter, which has all of the canonical psalms of Israel, is referred to in scholarship as the historical hymnal of Israel's prayers and praise. And how did they sing their how did they focus their praise? They did it when they sang. Okay? So those terms are interchangeable, and I'll be using them interchangeably today. So before we get into the Psalm of Jonah, I want to make sure that we have the ability to read it within the greater context of the book as a whole. Do we think that's a good idea, church? If the Psalm is found in the book, do you think the greater context of the book should direct our interpretation of the Psalm that was found in it? Okay, I agree. We don't just want to isolate it, right? And then say, oh, well, we'll just interpret this the way we do the Psalter. One problem, this one wasn't found in the Psalter. This one was found in the book of Jonah. (laughs) There are lots of Psalms outside the book of Psalms in the Bible. And so we don't just look at the Psalm and go, oh, well, we will interpret this like we do all of the ones in the Psalter. No, we have to interpret it in the greater context of the writing we find it in. I have to belabor this point because so often people, Tim Mackey says this, so often people read their Bible and they're like, oh, I like that one. I'm going to cross-stitch that one and put it on a pillow on my couch. The problem with that is you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if that's, the, if that's how you read the Bible. Don't do that. <laughs> problem is I think the church has been interpreting the Psalm of Jonah like the Psalter. They've been exiting the the psalm out of the book and looking at it as if it doesn't belong there. Lots of scholars argue that the psalm was written later and put into the book. One problem with that argument, even if that happened, it's in the inspired final edition that we find in our Bible. So we have to deal with the Psalter in the form of literature that we find it in. And that's the greater context of the book of Jonah itself. So even if it is a later edition, which I don't believe it is, but even if it is, you still got to interpret it with a solid hermeneutic. You got to do the book, the same way you do the book from beginning to end, right? Otherwise, you have a wacky approach to your interpretation. You can do that if you want. I just don't suggest it. So as modern students of the text, we need to pause and we need to recognize that we're dealing with a defiant, unrepentant individual who's actively rebelling against the will and the word of God, okay? That's who Jonah is. And everybody said, me too. Not like the movement, but like Jonah. I wanted to clarify that. Y'all are going to be like, he's going woke. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. We can take it a step further. We can go beyond saying that Jonah is a defiant, unrepentant individual who is currently rebelling against the will and the word of God. We can look at the psalm, right? The psalm, no different than the narrative, continually reveals the prophet's self-centered perspective. 
both Anderson and Bruckner observed Jonah's self-centered, self-focused orientation, highlighting the reality that Jonah chooses to use the personal and possessive pronouns, I, me, and my, 26 times in this eight-verse prayer. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I, me, and my. And then I was like, nah, I pray like that too. Dang it. (laughs) All the time. It's like this book is just going, wow. You like that? No, I don't like it, but it's the truth, so I have to deal with it. Jonah is a self-centered, self-focused individual. Read the prayer and you'll find out. I think that the, the fact that they highlight the reality that he uses these personal and possessive pronouns 26 times suggests that he aims to say more about himself than he does about God. I'm not saying that he's not quoting from the Psalter. I'm just saying that anybody can take portions of this verse fits my context and this verse fits my context and this verse and they can mishmash it together and make it say anything they want, right? That's, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a, an understanding of the text that's just enough understanding to be dangerous but not enough to be right, you know? And that's a problem. So when we recognize this, we have to say that this is the data that will set the framework for our interpretation moving forward, Right? Jonah knew his psalms. <laughs> That's why yesterday I asked, or last week I asked the question, am I supposed to believe that this trained theologian in Israel who is a prophet and representative of God to the people has forgotten Psalm 51? Remember when I said that? You know, like, all he had to do was repent on the ship, and he's like, no, just sacrifice me. It's like, you're an idiot, dude. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'm always trying to bargain with God too. I'll give up this if you'll just do this for me, right? This book is just like the laser from the sniper rifle on your heart. Just pow, I'm going to get you, boy. Pow, I'm going to get you, boy. You're going to try to run, but I'm not going to miss, you know? And you just constantly, you're just getting battered with the truth. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So the data that this character and nature of Jonah that is a failure by definition is going to drive the framework for our interpretation. Why? That's a great question. Well, around here we know that context determines meaning. We would say context is king. And if this is the reality of the book from verse 2 in chapter 1 to the end of the story in chapter 4, then at minimum it has to affect our interpretation of the psalm. At maximum, it's got to drive our interpretation of the psalm. And today, I'm all gas, no break, baby. (laughs) So I think we're ready to dig in. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Okay, I'm going to... This is not in my manuscript, okay? So I'm going to come off the manuscript here, okay? And I'm just going to do a little teaching moment on how to read biblical uh, poetry, okay? You don't read poetry like you read narrative, okay? Do you read your your IRS bill (laughs) the same way that you read a text message from your husband? Hey, if you have the time, would you pick up dinner tonight on your way home from work? 
oh, that's the same, I'm going to take that same interpretive measure of that message. No, I just don't have the time and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to apply this to my IRS bill. Hey, this much is due on this date. Pay up. Well, you know what? I don't really have that money and I don't really feel like it, so I'm just not going to pay it. Is that your interpretive application, right, to two different forms of literature? <laughs> no, okay? We've shifted out of the narrative and we've shifted into poetry here. So we need to recognize that biblical poetry is not like English poetry. It doesn't really move on rhyme. It moves on meter, okay? And so we need to know that. All the musicians in the house were like, oh, I get that. You know, it's like moving on a metronome as opposed to moving on the rhyme scale. Now here we're, de- we're, we're going to be dealing with, this is not the full psalm, okay? But there are a lot of portions that focus, they function as couplets. So this line is two lines, but it functions as one thought. This line is two lines, but it functions as one thought. Okay, and it's called a parallelism. The first line speaks, and the second line advances the thought of the first line. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So this line clarifies what's going on in this line. And he, Yahweh, answered me, and you, Yahweh, heard my voice. Again, the parallelism brings clarity. Do we see that? So this is how we read biblical Hebrew poetry, okay? We slow down. We take a look at it. We don't read it by punctuation. We read it by line. We recognize that two lines can function as one line, like a couplet, a couple, or you can have triplets and quadruplets, etc. So we need to know what we're dealing with before we just go, I know how to read the Psalms, <laughs> when we don't really know. And all the young adults are going, man, we're going to use all this information in our new study on the book of Psalms that you guys are getting ready to launch this week, right? Praise the Lord. If you guys want the resource material, okay, grasping God's word and how to read the Bible for all it's worth are perfect books for the layperson, and they function as textbooks in the seminaries and universities, okay? So you can buy Grasping God's Word, and you can buy How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and both books are written so you don't have to read them from the beginning to the end. You could just jump in and be like, I want to study poetry. I want to know what it's like. Boom, just read the chapter on poetry. And if you don't have it, I'll loan it to you. And then you'll give it back to me when you're done, okay? (laughs) All right. Now we're one verse. We're one verse into the Psalm of Jonah, and we've already discovered the answer to one of our previous questions. <laughs> Jonah's prayer is a response to the distress which he's currently experiencing. Therefore, we may answer in the affirmative. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Jonah's prayer is a panicked response to the threat of his own death and destruction. I cried out, out of my distress. <laughs> He didn't cry out for any other reason. (laughs) You guys know that Jonah's not a victim of circumstance, right? Like we cannot and we should not feel sorry for this guy. Everybody goes, oh man, that's not empathetic. Yeah, I struggle with empathy for sure, right? But I know how to be compassionate, right? And when you're looking at a fool, make stupid decisions and he knows better, and he continues to make them over and over, at some point for your own mental health and emotional security, you have to put a boundary in place and go, yeah, I'm done hurting with this individual. 
They're actually living off of the reality that their self-hurt inflicts pain on me, and I think that's beginning to drive the behavior behind the relationship, and that is unhealthy, okay? Boundaries are healthy, so we're gonna put a boundary in place when we deal with Jonah because he's not a healthy individual, okay? So we cannot and we should not feel sorry for him. Had he been obedient to the word of God, he would have never been in the fish's belly in the first place. Hey, Jonah, remember chapter 1, verse 2? I need you to get up. Arise, get up. Go to Nineveh. He wasn't ambiguous about where he needed him to be. And call out against that great city. If Jonah would have just been obedient, guess where he wouldn't be? <laughs> Crying out from the belly of the fish, yo. Don't feel sorry for this, jackass. That's what you're going to be tempted to do. Put a healthy boundary in place and say, mm, no, dude. You reap what you sow, brother. <laughs> you reap what you sow. He's crying out. He's got somebody's ear. He don't have mine, you know? <laughs> and he's thankful for that too. Now just take two seconds to consider the willful, sinful rebellion that led Jonah into the present situation. And this ticks me off, man. He has the nerve to use orthodox language from the Psalter to describe his experience in terms that had historically been used by Israelites who were genuinely suffering unjustly at the hands of the wicked. So Jonah just goes to the Psalter and he's like, I'm going to borrow this language from people who were actually hurting at the hands of the unjust and I'm going to apply it to myself. And I was like, dang it! I do that all the time! Over and over again, I find that I have so much in common with this. Is Amy in here? She is, huh? She told me I can't say that word, so I'll just say with this ridiculous individual. I wasn't going to say the other word. I was going to say something worse. Is it really, though? That's, what, that's the question in my mind. Is it really? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. You guys are going to pull me into a snare here, and then Nathan's going to leave the church. All right. We're talking about the fact that Jonah's worldview is distorted, okay? He focuses his cry for help and it directly contradicts the fact that Jonah had prepared the fish to deliver Jonah, that God had prepared the fish, I'm sorry, to deliver Jonah prior to the moment when he was tossed overboard. This is not a special act of creation where the fish just appeared and swallowed Jonah. The Hebrew language does not define that. John Calvin argues that, but he's wrong, okay? This is not a special act of creation. He's wrong on that point. And we need to be aware that some theologians are going to argue that, and you need to be able to say, no, that's not linguistically what's going on here. Okay? Now, here's the deal. Jonah's worldview is distorted. In his commentary on the book of 1 Jonah, Old Testament scholar Kevin Youngblood argues that the author leaves his original audience with the impression that the appointment of the great fish was actually Yahweh's answer to the pagan sailor's prayer. Remember, they asked God, don't hold us guilty 
for Jonah's life. Chapter one, they knew Jonah was guilty before God. Simultaneously, they knew that Jonah had done nothing deserving of death at their hands, so what did they do? They said, Lord, don't let this innocent man's blood fall on us. And again, we cleared this up last week. Jonah was guilty before God, innocent before them, deserving, not deserving of death at their hands. So they prayed for Jonah. So Youngblood argues that the fish is a gracious response to these people's prayer. Art, you were just up here talking about imagine if you don't ask. Imagine if your mother didn't pray. Imagine if you didn't pray. Imagine if these sailors didn't pray. So therefore, we can argue that God's instrument of salvation, the great fish, was en route before Jonah broke his silence before God. The sailors prayed for Jonah's life to be spared before Jonah prayed for deliverance. And the merciful God of the Bible responded. We're halfway through this first verse, and it's not looking very good for the pious prophet, is it? I would say it's not looking good for any of us, if we're going to be honest. As we're looking at verse two, I believe we could argue that Jonah has no idea where he's at. As a matter of fact, if you look back, chapter two, verse one, it's the narrator who tells us his location. It's not Jonah who reveals his location. However, I believe that his reference to Sheol is grounded in the cultural context of the ancient Near East. Listen, in the Hebrew Bible, Sheol is known as the realm of the dead. It's the netherworld. It's where dead people go. Jonah had just been hurled from the land of the living into the sea, and the sea represents chaos symbolically. So in what appears to be the, pro- the prophet's final descent, remember Jonah went down in chapter 1, then Jonah went down again, then he went down, and now he's going down for what looks like the final count. Uriel Simon spotlights the power of prayer at this moment in his commentary. He writes, and I love this, that the glory of prayer is that it has the power to save the petitioner from a situation that would have been irreparable apart from divine intervention. And Deb said, amen, that's my testimony from this morning. Now even though we know that God was responding to the sailors' requests, Jonah was right about one thing. Apart from the Lord's intervention, he was gonna be cut off from the land of the living. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Okay, so the first thing that we need to highlight in regard to verse 3 is that Jonah has hit the proverbial rewind button. He's like, I'm not talking about my current circumstances. I'm looking in the rearview mirror telling you guys what happened to me. You get it? It appears that he wants to share the details of his salvation experience from his perspective. There's just one problem with that. Jonah's worldview is distorted, yo. He's out of touch with reality. Yahweh did not cast him into the deep. The sailors did it. And they did it, why? They did it at his request. He asked them to do it. 
It was in a response to the sailor's prayer that Yahweh compassionately appointed the fish to rescue Jonah from the heart of the seas. Otherwise, Jonah would have died. So God didn't cast him into the sea. He saved him from it. (laughs) Yo, Jonah's worldview is twisted. Somebody needs to tell Jonah that it's time for him to grow up and take some responsibilities for the decisions that he's made. And all the parents looked at their children and said, Yes, I've been looking at my kid and praying for my kid to stop making those kinds of decisions. And all the kids cocked their head and said, stop the cat, mom. Stop the cat, dad. Why are you telling lies? I'm just replicating the same behavior that I've been witnessing my whole life. And everybody in the room said, oh, man, I'm not above reproach either. Equal application to everybody. Two years old to 200, yo. Nobody's excluded. (laughs) Yahweh didn't cast him into the deep. I read this stuff and I'm like, bro, you're borrowing from the Bible. You're twisting it like Kenneth Copeland and you're pissing me off. (laughs) That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep it a buck, yo. That man's a heretic. And that's problematic. The man has bad theology, and he expresses it to the body as an authoritative figure, and he brings people down, and he makes the church look ridiculous. It wasn't God who cast Jonah into the sea. It was the sailors. It's time for this prophet to take some responsibility. Can you guys read this next slide? It just keeps getting better and better. (laughs) And I mean that sarcastically. How can Jonah speak of being banished? Banished, bro? I don't get it. Your current dilemma is a direct result of your senseless attempt to flee Yahweh's presence. We talked about it. Arise, go, call out. And Jonah chose to rebel. His dilemma is his problem. Everything that he's recounting stands in direct conflict with the truth of his situation. After reading and studying this book, I find zero evidence of remorse. I find zero evidence of repentance in the life of the prophet. And it's for these reasons and others that scholars like James Ackerman suggest the prayers are part of the satire in the book. We've talked about irony, we've talked about satire, and we've talked about how biblical authors use them to drive their points home. So Jonah's prayer is a part of the satire. Jonah's prayer, it parodies the elements of true prayer. At this point, I agree with him. I mean, we're looking at the text in the context of the book, and I don't know if we have another option. And we have yet to ask the question, from which kingdom does Jonah hail? Think back to kingdom, think back to uh, sermon number one, yo, sermon number one and two. From which kingdom does Jonah hail? The northern kingdom. (laughs) Where's the temple? In Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, right? (laughs) Are you trying to tell me that I'm supposed to believe that this northern prophet 
who functioned in the northern kingdom, working for the northern kings, remained faithful to the temple in Zion? (laughs) Allow me to remind you that there's zero evidence in the text to support such a theory. He's a northern prophet. (laughs) Oh, but Matt, Amos traveled to the north to deliver messages. That's Amos. (laughs) Do we have any evidence in the text that Jonah operated outside the northern kingdom, specifically apart from going to Nineveh? No. (laughs) It's conjecture. It's conjecture that Jonah was a faithful prophet who served in the southern kingdom's temple, but somehow functioned in his office in the northern kingdom. There's just a lack of evidence for that. And yet the church continues to perpetuate that. It's ridiculous. There's no evidence in the text. So when you perpetuate that ideology, say it's total conjecture, but I believe it to be true. At least be honest about it. Jonah lived and functioned in the northern kingdom. At this point, I think it's safe to say that the parody runs deeper than the prayer. The parody runs deeper than any of us ever assumed. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now this right here, this is what one commentator refers to as the prophet Jonah at his best, all right? So if we're looking for a snapshot of Jonah when he's doing well, that's it. (laughs) Just about everything Jonah mentions in these two verses could be qualified as truth. I mean, if we wanted to get nitpicky, we could talk about the hyperbole. Did he really go down to the bars who's closed upon him forever? Anybody finished reading the whole story? It's hyperbolic. Again, that's a literary device in Hebrew poetry. And we need to be able to recognize when someone is using hyperbole. When something is hyperbolic, it's not always factually true. It's how Jonah feels, but we've already proved that how Jonah feels is not consistent with reality. So if we wanted to stress it, we could. But for the sake of the argument, we'll just say that everything he's saying in these two verses could be qualified as truth. Now notice the depth of the theological truth in the close of verse 6. It is Yahweh alone who deserves the credit for bringing up the life of the prophet from what seemed like certain death. Jonah gets one thing right, it's that, yo. He gets another thing right in the close of his prayer, but up to this point, this is about the only thing that Jonah's gotten right. You, Yahweh, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. It is Yahweh who deserves the credit, not just for Jonah but for you and I as well. He has absolutely rescued us from what appeared to be certain death, both physically and spiritually. It's too bad Jonah had to flip a proverbial U-turn and drive back down the same road that he had just turned off of. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please?
It's my opinion. That Jonah, as an individual, lacks understanding. He's convinced that piety equates to repentance. And that's not true. Piety is not synonymous with repentance. Look closely at Jonah's words. I... I remembered the Lord. It's my opinion that this portion of the text, it clearly portrays his heart posture, and his heart posture is wayward. Jonah's self-centered, self-focused orientation is on full display in 4K right now, right here in verse 7. Now, you might be asking yourself, Matt, I think you're stressing the point here. I think you're going beyond what the text actually teaches. Well, the best interpreter of Scripture is the Scripture. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 7, everybody. And let's read Genesis chapter 7, verse 17 through 8, 11. Genesis chapter 7. It says one, but I'm pretty sure it's 11. No, no, it's going to be 17 through 8, 1, correct. All right, so I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The divine warrior who is known for using wind as both a weapon to protect and punish brings a wind to bring deliverance to the family Noah. And it was God who remembered Noah. Did God appoint the fish before Jonah broke his silence with God? Absolutely. So it was God who remembered Jonah. Not Jonah who remembered God. This guy's a fool. I mean, can you hear it? I remembered God. My prayer came to you. I, my, me. (laughs) It's like, bro, where do you get off, man? (laughs) In light of what the text actually teaches, both the life of Noah and Jonah show that it was God who remembered not the other way around. 
Jonah's emphasis in verse 7 is absolutely 100% misplaced. The life of the prophet was spared due to the severe mercy of Yahweh. That's it. In all seriousness, Jonah had nothing to do with the miraculous act of God's deliverance. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? We'll read the next one. Callan uh, was a slide behind. So let's go back one slide real quick. I just want them to get the image in their mind, the visual and the audible teaching, right? This is a mathematical greater than sign. <laughs> so we would say that Genesis offers the better interpretation of who remembered as we read the book of Jonah, okay? And we would look at the reality that God appointed the fish before Jonah was even tossed over the deck, and we would say that it was God who remembered Jonah, no different than how God remembered Noah, amen? Okay, so that's the visual for that. Someone, yeah. Jonah's less than, right? Yeah, Genesis is greater than. What, oh, it's the greater than, this is. Wait, no, Genesis offers the greater interpretation. Oh, okay. Oh, God, I get it. I get, okay, okay, okay. Jonah is less than Genesis is what you're saying, I should have said. Hey, I take that correction. She's a teacher, right? So I'll take that. I'll put that in the bank, and next time I will correctly say that Jonah is less than and Genesis is greater than, right? Even I'm learning today. Thank you. Thank you. Nobody wants to be wrong, right? I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> okay, so Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols. This is the only reference, everybody, in the entire prayer where Jonah mentions somebody other than himself. <laughs> We're almost at the end, and this is the first time that Jonah has the goal to mention somebody else. <laughs> We're not sure if Jonah's comparing himself to the pagan sailors, you know, the ones who prayed for him. <laughs> or if he's comparing himself to the Ninevites or to the non-Israelites in general. But here's what we do know. Because Jonah had been delivered from what seemed like certain death, he now considered himself to be the polar opposite of such people like these pagan idol worshipers. He believed that simply because he was on the receiving end of God's mercy, he was somehow better than them. Again, he's delusional, everybody. <laughs> Something is seriously wrong in the mind of the prophet Jonah. Ironically, Jonah is willing to ridicule others while overlooking his own rebellion. And everybody in the room said, Ah, I don't want to study this book anymore. <laughs> because that's me. <laughs> How many times are we going to say, This is a word for somebody in the room, or this is me? Right, Rob? Cup check sermon, right? How many times is the Bible going to kick me in the nuts and remind me that I'm not worth my salt? <laughs> Don't look to me. You know? Don't look to me. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Did we not get the cup check reference or what? I hear people, oh. Boob. It's like a boob punch. Those hurt, right? I know those hurt. I've heard y'all talk about that. We'll be gender neutral. You know, we got words for everything. Yeah, kick to the crotch. There you go. That's, that's a medical term right there from a nurse right there. I like it. Okay. That's right. Remove it. <laughs> Amen. 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 So Jonah is wrong, you know. Jonah's wrong. He's just willing to judge every person, but he's unwilling to turn and look in the mirror. And we need to recognize that. Now, John Walton says clearly that Jonah viewed himself as having remained loyal despite his rebellion and his disobedience. In the close of his prayer, Jonah vows to offer sacrifice of a sacrifice of thanksgiving while giving Yahweh the glory for his miraculous act of salvation. So look, Jonah's doing the piety thing again. I'm going to offer God all of the things that the law requires, but my heart is nowhere in it. <laughs> By the way, salvation belongs to Yahweh. <laughs> Amen? Amen. It's like, I know I got that part right. <laughs> Still refusing to look in the mirror. Now, Daniel Timmer writes that Jonah's deliverance demonstrates God's mercy. That's not up for debate here. But the prophet's prayer continually develops what can only be described as a strange disconnect between the theology that Jonah knows in his head and the attitude of his heart, which seems to drive his actions. And you know what? A lot of people say, people are going to miss heaven by about 12 inches, yo. You can know God here, but if he doesn't know you here, then none of that matters. He goes on to say that despite the, the pious overtones of Jonah's prayer, the text paints the prophet in an extremely negative light. He's just like this psalm, and that psalm, and this psalm. And he did a terrible job because he still ended up looking like a doofus. We're thankful that the author uses this type of tool in the Bible. Why? Why are we thankful? It functions as a sharp warning to all who profess to know and love God. Don't be like this. The religious individual who prizes piety but lacks repentance and fruit, it's not good for that individual. Nobody likes that individual. Praise God he died for people like that because that's me. Timmer goes a step further. He writes that one may argue that Jonah neither loves God nor his Israelite neighbor. He says this can be a judgment that we can base solely on the fruit of Jonah's actions as displayed in the text of Scripture. We're judging Jonah on the data that the inspired author has given us. Jonah cannot say, I love God and I love people. And therefore, we may ask, is it true? Jonah may not 
love God and he may not love people. Rob, I think about your word. First John, right? Can't love God whom you have not seen if you can't love your brother whom you've had seen. I wonder if that informed the backdrop of what John was writing as he pondered the behavior of the church that needed to be corrected. These are harsh truths, everybody. Harsh truths. But we have to deal with what the text teaches, not with what we want the text to say. The master, Jesus of Nazareth, had something to say on this topic as well. Leslie brought up one example. I'm gonna give a different one. Luke chapter 18, verse nine through 14, everybody. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Are we noticing any parallelisms right here in reading Jonah and then the words that Jesus is using in his parallel? Do you think that he has any intent behind that? The Old Testament lays the foundation for everything that's been written in the New Testament, everybody. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Jonah just prayed that. (laughs) Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Piety, piety, piety. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. Do you know what it means to be justified? That's a strong word in the New Testament, everybody. And God says one was justified and the other was not. Jonah has more in common with the Pharisee, everybody. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Both the narrative and the psalm in the book of Jonah, display an unrepentant man who by definition lacks humility. Jonah seems to have, like I said, more in common with the Pharisee. So what's our takeaway this morning, saints? What's our big takeaway? Yeah, Jonah sucks. And down comes the mirror. Oh, snap, I suck. I think it's safe to say that by the close of chapter 2, even the fish couldn't stomach this self-righteous, religious prophet Jonah. But let's not take my word for it. I need you guys to read this last slide. Look, the bookends of chapter two, that's the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. Think like a bookshelf and the weighted bookends that you put on it, right? The bookends of chapter two emphasize the sovereignty of God over the created order. The chapter ends no different than it begins. Although we can't say with certainty where exactly the fish vomited Jonah out, we do know that he was right back where it all started, on dry land 
in the land of the living. So again, what have we learned this morning, saints? Well, I hope that we've learned that the God of the Bible is the God of second chances. Because we all need third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances too, everybody. The idealist will leave this morning and argue that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. The pessimist or the naysayer will argue that God has given us in the text of Scripture a clear example of how we ought not to live our lives. And the reality of the situation is both of them are correct. Truth be told, if I could ask you to remember one thing from this morning's study, I'd ask you to remember that our salvation, no different than Jonah's deliverance, belongs to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for your word, which continually confronts us in our sin, bringing us actively to repentance, Lord. I pray, God, that our hearts would gravitate towards repentance and away from piety. I pray, Lord, that we would not bear the image of the prophet Jonah, but we would bear the image of the creator and the sustainer who created us. I pray, Lord, that our light would shine and that it wouldn't be dimmed by existential crisis in our lives, that we wouldn't only call out to Jonah or that we wouldn't only call out to God like Jonah when he was forced to, but that we would call out to God like the prophet and the, and the apostle Paul writes, without ceasing. You are a good father who desires to be in right relationship with your people, and communication is a key aspect of right relationship, Lord. So help us to be in constant communication with you. I pray that when a request arises in the body, that people would reach out to the prayer line, that they would make their requests made known, not just with boldness before the throne of God, but with boldness before the body of God and the people of God, so that we can participate in the work of God. Father, bless this day and all that we do in Jesus' name, amen. Now it's 1140. I'm willing to take questions for five minutes on anything that we've covered this far if any question exists or needs to be dealt with right now. Okay. Kendall, let me answer his question and then I'll hit you. It's all right. I want to, I want to, I'm glad that you asked because I want to tackle this, all right? Go back to the, the, the Hebrew terminology slide real quick. This is important, okay? For those of you in the room who have a strict wooden historical interpretation of the book of Jonah, I'm going to prepare you for an argument that you're inevitably going to have to have with somebody someday, okay? The, the ambiguous one. Okay, so in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the masculine form of fish, dagadol, gadol is great, right? So dagadol is used in chapter 1, verse 17. In the close of chapter 2, in verse 10, dagadol, dag, the male masculine form, is used as well. But in Jonah chapter 1, or in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, daga. The gender of the fish changes. And so if you have a strict 
historical interpretation of the book of Jonah, you're going to have a real tough time explaining how two fish make it into the narrative and not just one. Now, the Jewish rabbis have a a midrash that deals with this. They say that God dispatched a male fish to make Jonah comfortable so that he would turn to him. But he did not, so God caused the male whale to spit him out underwater and a pregnant female who had over 300,000 developing babies in her belly to swallow Jonah and make him uncomfortable so that he would cry out, okay? So that's how the Jewish rabbis in the Midrash deal with answering that question. I'm not, uh, I'm not satisfied with that answer, but I also don't hold to a strict historical interpretation. I believe that Jonah is a real person in space and time, as I've argued. I believe that he experienced all of this, but I want to in- in- encourage you who do hold to the strict historical p- perspective, here's what you can answer, okay? Daga, the female uh, form of the verb, is a typological, uh, it's, a, it's a word that the author of Scripture used because it's, it's typological. The shift happens because the whale represents both the tomb of Jonah as it takes him down to the netherworld, and it represents the womb of Jonah as it spits him up on the dry land for his second opportunity to be obedient. Okay? So you need to know these things if you're going to hold to a strict historical interpretation so that when somebody who knows the Bible comes and goes, oh, that's what you think? Well, explain this to me. You can go, oh, well, okay. But here's what my pastor told me to say. But it's not just why my pastor said that I should say it. It's because it actually makes sense to the critical thought. Okay? The Bible uses typology. It's another literary device. And next week's sermon, we're going to do what's called an excurse. We're going to look at the two typological um, interpretations that Jesus preaches on Jonah. And then the following week, pray for me because I'm going to do a sermon on the difference between absolute prophecy and conditional prophecy so that we all have an understanding. We're at the midway point in the book. Both of these sermons are going to be contextual to understanding how to study and read Jonah. So we're going to do them as a part of the series, okay? Okay, Kendall, what was your question? And then we'll end with this. Okay, so this is a deep question that probably requires its own sermon. So let me say this, okay? For the students in the room who are interested in having a deep understanding of the character and the nature of God, there is such a thing in the text of Scripture as partial repentance and partial salvation. Okay? 
Now, I'm not talking on a soteriological level. I'm talking on a physical experiential level. Jonah, I argued, did not love God or love people. But the mercy of God delivered him physically from death in the sea. That is a partial act of salvation, affording Jonah a future opportunity to fully repent and turn to God so that he might receive full salvation. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's one example of partial repentance and partial salvation. We've been talking about this on the side. We'll talk about this a little bit more. If you have more questions, I can give you more examples. They're in there. But listen, think about it like this. My favorite Christian rapper, or one of them, says that people get born again all the time, but they need to learn how to live again, okay? When you are born again, your whole mind is not transformed like that, right? So sanctification is a part of the salvation process. It's part of the being saved process, right? So even then we could argue that you are salvifically or soteriologically or eschatologically saved, but God has a lot of work to work out in your heart and in your mind, right? So repentance should be thought as a 180, not a partial turn, not a 360, but a 180. I'm going in this direction. I'm pursuing this thing. I recognize that this thing is no longer what I need or what is good for me. It's not God's will in my life. I turn a 180. This is the direction that God is in. I set my focus and my gaze on him like the author of Hebrews talks about, and I run back to him. And like the father and the prodigal, he will run to me, but not a moment sooner. So piety is like religiosity, like I'm going to do so that I can get, right? I would say it's grounded in a historical understanding of retributive theology or retributive justice, right? Like you reap what you sow is retributive justice, except for in Christ, we don't have to worry about reaping what we sow because he paid it all, okay? But there's a partial understanding of like retributive justice. Some people call it strict justice. If you do something wrong, then you have to be punished for it. Well, some of the things that I have done wrong in this life that I have not experienced consequences for in this life, like all the drunk driving I did when I was young and I never got pulled over for, I'm not gonna pay that price, not in this world or in the world to come. But the reason I'm not gonna pay that price in the world to come is not because of anything I did, but because of everything he did, amen? Okay, so that's a way to like, I would say like to just in a summary form, piety is like, it's the exchange, it's, it's religiosity. I'm going to sacrifice this thing to God, not because my heart is contrite before him, but because I believe if I give him this thing, then he's going to give me this thing. And it becomes a symbiotic relationship. I give so that I can get. And that's not how a relationship works with God. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming, yeah. Ritualistic. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it can be piety to put on a suit and a tie for church, you know? And then someone comes to your church and they're in shorts and a t-shirt like me and they got a bunch of tattoos and they're like, <gasps> you know, and they think that they're, I'm going to wear my, I got my Sunday clothes in my closet. It's like, bro, God is not concerned with what you put on at all. He's concerned with this. 
And if you believe that he's concerned with what you put on to the degree that you make everyone else in the room so uncomfortable that they have to put the same thing on, that's piety, right? And that's not what God is about, right? If that's what God was about, we'd all be wearing robes and sandals right now, and the men would have beards, and they wouldn't cut the, the, the curls on their beards, and they wouldn't cut their hair, and the women would have their head, because that's how they worshiped and lived in the first century, right? So are we saying that the, the, the men and women who wear the suits and the ties and the dresses that go past their knees to the ground and don't ever wear jeans are more holy than the people in the first century? No. No, no, no. That's a cultural, like... Um, that's a cultural understanding, right? So piety needs to be framed in like the context of religiosity. And God is not into that. Now, religion is not a bad word, okay? But we'll talk about that a different day. It's been a long service. It's 12 o'clock. So let's stand up, let's do the doxology, and let's get out of here. If you need prayer today, if you need prayer today, prayer team people, raise your hands. We got Art, Stephanie, James, and James, I don't, I don't see him, but I he was here earlier. All right, let's do the doxology, and then, uh, and and if you need prayer, see one of us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.